Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome back. My name's Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 129, where we will be covering chapters four and five of Dead House Gates by Steven Erickson. Our next book club will cover chapters six and seven. Dead House Gates. So what did you think of these chapters? I liked them. Awesome. Well, let's get into it. So let's start with talking about the Snapter for Chapter 4. It's a short one, so I'll just read it. In a land where seven cities rose in gold, even the dust has eyes. So once again, we're getting references to the history of the Raraku Desert. You know, that we've heard about how the sands were once an ocean. The dust is more than dust. There's more to this desert than meets the eye. Very heavily being hinted at. Yeah, I I definitely like the sort of there are spies everywhere vibe that it sort of, you know, portraying. Mm -hmm. And one thing that's really refreshing for me about Steven Erickson's world is that it lacks the cliche that's common in a lot of modern fantasy that that, uh, you know, the gods are made up, you know, or not everybody believes in magic, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It is like literally that there's none of that. Everybody knows the gods are real. Everybody knows that magic is real. You know, it's not something humans made up to explain the unexplainable. So if Steven Erickson says the desert has eyes, I'm willing to believe pretty much anything. Literal eyes. It's it's like ground eyeballs. I'd be like, okay, (laughs) I'd go with it. Yeah, I mean, we definitely have a track record of some batshit crazy stuff happening from the last book. So the bar has been set pretty high, especially for just strangeness and fantasy level. Yeah, at this point, I'm just taking everything completely literally. Absolutely. Stephen Erickson says. Absolutely. <laughs> Events are swirling around Felicin in the mines, but she is too overtaken by her addiction to put the pieces together. Beneth begins to suspect that Felicin is more than she seems and leaves her for dead in an alley. Callum takes shelter from a sandstorm in the village of Ladro Keep, where he unwittingly sets off a massacre. Red Blade Captain Lostara Yill is still tracking the Book of Drygena and killing everyone who might witness their passing. Mappo and Akarium explore the crypt beneath the old temple. They end up finding, dun-dun-dun, the gate to the Path of Hands. When they tell Iskarl Pust about their discovery, he replies, you ain't found shit, and sends them <laughs> off to find a broom. Meanwhile, Duker, Culp, and Bolt meet up to watch Sormo Enath raise some ancient earth spirits. He accidentally plops them smack dab in the middle of a warren full of Soltaken and Devere looking for the Path of Hands. A comically large group of shapeshifters attacks them, and Culp saves the day by punching Sormo in the face. She punched me in the face. It was awesome. It was awesome. I have you doing Mean Girls references. (laughs) (laughs) This is what it's come to. The transformation is complete. All right, so let's talk about Felicin's storyline. Now, we're, we're going to begin this whole section with a really uplifting, heartwarming, right. coming-of-age tale of almost dying in an alley. This is pretty, pretty, <laughs> this is some pretty awful dark stuff. stuff. Yes. So, obviously, you know, we, in the last section, we were introduced to the, to the slave mines. It's not like the slave mines are new to us. Right. Um, but we're just getting, 
what's really changing here is, uh, you know, sort of the darkness surrounding Felison in particular. Right. I did enjoy that the way this sort of starts is actually a little moment of humanity in that in this place that is objectively awful, that does not value human life, even the most jaded people in the slave mine are still moved to action by the tragedy of the collapsed mine. Now, there's also some, there's some raw pragmatism going on there as well that they need people to work the mines Mm -hmm. and they don't want to lose people, but people are also motivated to jump in and try and save people where they can save people. There's this very human tragic event going around and Fellison is sitting there watching it all absolutely completely numb. Yeah, so there's been a, a cave-in in the deep mines, which is where uh, her friend Heberick was originally supposed to be until she convinced Beneth, the sort of slave master, even though he's a slave himself, to transfer him. Um, she convinced him, you know, using sexual favors. And she's sitting there reflecting, watching these with some 30 slaves that got that were killed, watching them be dragged out of the rubble. And she's reflecting that she doesn't even feel relief or satisfaction that her friend is not there. Um, she she thinks back to something Hebrick said to her. I actually wrote it down. Your numb girl, Hebrick had said, one of the last times he'd addressed her, yet your thirst for feeling grows, even pain will do. But you're looking in the wrong places. Wrong places? What did he know of wrong places? The far reach of deep mine was a wrong place. The shaft where the bodies would be dumped was a wrong place. Everywhere else is just a shade of good enough. Mm-hmm. And then she turned to him and she was like, you're not my dad. <laughs> Pretty much. But no, I wrote down that exact same phrase because I, I do think it's very telling of what her state of mind is. You know, he's he's very perceptive about where she is and very accurate, or at least it would seem like it's very accurate. And then she's approached by a guard, the same guard who approached her some time ago, what to her feels like a long time ago. And he had said something about, you know, a quote, you know, you need to find the end of this quote. And um, we find out that it's only been two weeks, two weeks that she has become, he says, you know, you look like you've aged years. Queen's heart, girl, you look 10 years older than the last time I saw you. And when was that? Two weeks back? I'm like, has it really only been two weeks? Is that is that a statement about how incredibly powerful Durhang is or just how deep her trauma is? I'm sure it's a combination. I think it's both, for both. sure. Yeah. Well, it seems obvious to the reader. Now, Fellison interprets his advances as, you know, a sexual advance. And she says, well, you need to go talk to Beneth if you want to touch me. And you can come see me later. She completely misses that there's obviously something else going on here. Her her oblivion and, and really like internal, you know, cognitive dissonance that's going on in her brain. I think the way that Erickson uses her internal monologue to show us that that, you know, just how you know intellectually muted she is right now mm-hmm. uh, is really powerful. In a number of places, she's talking about Beneth and her relationship with Beneth and she's like oh any day now I'll move in with him Mm -hmm. but then uh, you know a paragraph later she says 
you know, Bennett says that her lovemaking had become torpid. And it, like she's going back and forth between this sort of illusion in her mind of what's happening and these observations of what's really happening. Mm-hmm. And she can't put the two of them together to make a coherent picture of what the truth is. Mm-hmm. But that's, uh, you know, not something that was re- immediately apparent to me until I read it a few times. Mm-hmm. So Beneth takes Felison to see the Captain Sawark, and we learn a couple of things. Number one, that there were four mages among the victims of the cave-in. And Beneth suspects that Sawark was hoping a particular name would be on that list. Mm-hmm. We also found out that Bauden has been arrested. And when the for, for Felison, what is the most important thing that happens here is that Beneth offers her, he's brought her as a gift for this captain. The captain, however, recognizes her and doesn't want anything to do with her. Mm-hmm. So Beneth at this point, you know, does not know that she's a noble and certainly would not have been treating her the way that she is if he had known that. So he flies into a rage as they leave. Uh, she insists, of course, that she's just, you know, uh, some priestess and she's not who she's not anyone special but he responds by beating the crap out of her like you do yeah (laughs) like what the fuck i mean i have to imagine because i kind of went back and forth in my head of okay at first my initial thought was why is it so important that people don't realize that she is the adjunct's sister like how how would that be such a negative thing in her case? And then I started to, to you know think about the situation and and understand that somebody in that mine would want to take a shot at her. Somebody in that mine would want to either to attempt to control her or to just kill her and say, "Look, I did." She was obviously a political prisoner. I did a favor for the empire. Some somebody would, or take revenge or against take revenge. the adjunct for yeah, you know. Not to mention the fact that she's a noble, and therefore, again, to your point, somebody might want to take revenge on her strictly for that. Well, also, if if you'll remember, she's not really supposed to be alive. It's supposed to be the nobility all gets killed. Like that's mm-hmm. how it works. You know, when the empress does a purge, and so she, you know, survived the purge was sent instead to the mines. Mm -hmm. But there probably are people who would not want her to be alive. So she wakes up from getting her, you know, getting smacked around and essentially knocked out in this alley to the smell of smoke and people running around, which caused me to wonder, is it just coincidence? I mean, obviously, Baldwin sets an alarm, or excuse me, sets a fire as a diversion Uh, that allows him to escape. Is it just coincidence, or did he somehow know what was happening and time it so that Beneth didn't beat her to death? I mean, I don't think so, but it did cross my mind that that's a possibility. Mm -hmm. But Hebrick is able to find her, brings her back, is trying to nurse her back to health. One of the first things she's able to say is, I really hope Beneth will take me back. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty bad. Yeah, I mean, and it's so interesting if you go on the message boards and various places where people talk about these books, a lot of readers have a very deep, like visceral 
hatred for this character. They really don't like Felison, and they find her very difficult to read and just a lot of complaining about her. And it's just, it's interesting in the way that Steven Erickson writes trauma. And that's one of the major themes of his writing, you know, having compassion for people in their darkest hour. But Felison's reaction to her abuse subverts this fantasy trope that I think a lot of us really expect where, you know, the heroine descends into the pit and there's all this horrible stuff and she just comes back and she's morally stronger than ever. And but like Steven Erickson is about the grim reality of things. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that not everybody has the ability to be a graceful victim. You know, most mm -hmm. people don't handle abuse that way. And and recovery, if people do recover from a trauma, abuse, and addiction, mm -hmm. isn't a straight line. Exactly. And it's definitely not an elevator. It's tempting, I think, to compare her to Hebrick, who's a very likable character, and uh, have her come off worse in that comparison. Because it's like, well, he doesn't even have any hands, you know? And he doesn't become a junkie in less than two weeks. But for me, like, this just highlights this truth that's not acknowledged very often, which is that teenagers' brains are not adults' brains, and they don't have the same ability to react to trauma, to react to abuse. And for me, this is one of the most important and compelling points that's been addressed here so far, and I th really think it's done on purpose. If you, like, I mean, I won't, like, go through everything, but if you just go... <laughs> I've held it back. Um, <laughs> but if you just Google like teenage brains response to trauma, that's there's so much information out there. I will just say, okay, it's so like one thing, okay? Like a teenager's brain is serotonin deficient because it's making this stuff called myelin, which is like a lubricant for your neurons and it's needed to like become an adult brain. But that's why teenagers are so like grumpy and bitchy all the time. But like... <laughs> There's so much information like that. And it just makes me think like, you know, we can't see our brains. So we don't, it's not a visible disability when someone has something wrong with their brain. But I, I like read this and I think like nobody would would think less of Hebra because he can't play the piano. Like you wouldn't <laughs> expect that from him. So like, why do we have this expectation that this character who's a child, who's a 15 year old child to like handle abuse like an adult would. And it's just like a, a weird, like we like to think of ourselves if we were in that situation that we would come out differently. And this is just a very like grim picture that's painted and it's hard to read. So I like understand yeah, it, yeah. the criticisms of her character, but also I don't understand. <laughs> well, it's definitely hard to read. There's no question about that. It yeah. is, it is the two sections we've read so far, both in this episode and the last episode where Felicin is obviously abused physically, emotionally, sexually, you know, then she, you know, pours herself into this addiction. It's a pretty awful thing. There's no question about it. So I can understand people being off, off put by it. At the same point in time, when you go back to the comparison to Heberick, Heberick is, is a grown man who has already dealt with a lot of trauma. Mm -hmm. So this is something that he is had some experience with. Now, I think, you know, trauma can be cumulative and it doesn't mean that somebody who's dealt with trauma is going to automatically handle it better than somebody else. But he's already dealt with this. And his situation in a number of ways is not as severe as hers. In some ways, it's pretty bad 
particularly before she was able to get him moved out of the mines. But, you know, now he's in a situation that's kind of the the best situation it could be in, in what is still a pretty awful set of circumstances. I thought the last line of this section was really moving where she just, you know, he's nursing her back to health and then he's like, okay, you can try and go back to Bennett if that's what you want, you know? And she looks at him and says, I'll never understand you, Heberick, or I don't understand you. And he just, he gets this very like, I think this poignant kind of wistful look and he says, no, you really don't. And to me, that's just saying, he's saying so much more than she understands in that moment. It's just a great, that's just a great narrative moment for me. It's hinting at so much that's going to happen. Not to sully our character observations with uh, trite and intrusive plot, but I do need to mention uh, that there is some plot sort of snuck in here at the end where he's nursing her back to health and he says, eventful night for us all, bowed and escaped jail. Oh, right. a few buildings the flame for diversion. He's hiding somewhere here in Skull Cup. No one tried the cliff walls or Sinker Lake. The cordon of guards lining Beetle Road up top reported no attempts to breach in any case. So it's it's just showing more about this, the two of them conspiring in some mm-hmm. degree of some type of test run, yeah, or testing out ways to escape. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's very it's obvious there's something, something's happening there. Well, let's talk about Calum. So Calum is being chased by a sandstorm. One little detail here that I really loved was the the detail of, of the sand fleas that follow the storms. Yeah. <laughs> I thought this was just so cool. What the, the first thing I noted was that he's, a, so he's approaching this town, the keep, and he says, the guardhouse is gaped empty like sockets of a massive geometric skull. I mean, can Steven Erickson write foreboding? Like, <laughs> come on. I loved that. I noted here my first thing that I wrote down is, as much as he detested horses in principle, the animal was magnificent when in full stride, seeming to flow effortlessly over the ground with a rhythm forgiving of Calum's modest skills. He would come no closer to admitting a growing affection towards the stallion. And I liked how when, you know, the storm hit, you know, he reaches down and covers the mm-hmm. the eye of the horse that's, you know, facing the wind. Mm-hmm. So I, I noted that. And then that comes back around later. So I'll... Mm-hmm. Address that later. So Caleb shows up at this keep. He's hunkered down uh, amongst some other travelers, just who are also trying to get out of the storm. And there's a really cool moment where this uh, a Pardu tribes woman and her companion um, are there, and then this merchant comes over and offers to read the deck of dragons for everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, to Caleb, he can tell that she's a fraud. She doesn't actually have the gift of reading the deck. Uh, but when he kind of reveals that to her and kind of calls her out on it, she screams and she throws the deck at him and the cards just like, like land in this perfect pattern. It struck him on the chest, cards clattering yeah. on the tabletop in a wild scatter, which settled into a pattern. The breath hissed from the party woman, the only sound to be heard within the common room. Suddenly sweating, Calum looked down at the cards. Six surrounded a single, and that single card, he knew with certainty, was his. The rope Assassin of Shadows. The six cards encircling it were all one house. King, Harold, Mason, Spinner, Knight, Queen, High House, Death. Hood's house, all arrayed. Around the one who carries the Holy Book of Drajna. 
Ah, well, Caleb sighed, glancing up at the Pardue woman. I guess I sleep alone tonight. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it has nothing to do with the book he's carrying. Um, <laughs> so this supernatural reaction between the Book of Drygena and the Deck of Dragons kind of adds to the mystery of both a little bit and demonstrates to the open-ended nature of the cards because in the past, the robe card has been associated with Cotillion or Sari, who was Cotillion, and we see it now associated with Calum. So it seems like those roles are not necessarily like locked onto one person. One of the things I like about the way Erickson does magic, or at least what I've been able to see so far, is by way of comparison, Brandon Sanderson and a number of other authors will have a system, and the system itself is fairly static. Yes. What the magic system is. There's the rules. We play by the rules. And then what will happen over time is they'll introduce like elements that mm-hmm. sort of add to that, to your understanding of that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the way Erickson does it at all. Right. He's like, here's a, here's a, the way things work now. And then, you know, the gods or some powerful or ascendant intervenes and it's like, oh shit, now it, it works different. Like <laughs> it just does like deal with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and this is an example of, of that sort of thing happening you know so there's not really ever a set of rules Mm -hmm. there's not really an expectation that you can have right because later on in the section that we read uh caleb mentions something about him becoming the herald of death so yeah i think you you can't get bogged down on that kind of stuff when you're reading in this world no so so but the pardu woman is my favorite character in this section oh yeah (laughs) Just the the descriptions of her and the way uh-huh. he goes back and forth with her, you know, uh-huh. read the cards if you can, which I highly doubt. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, he mentions her makeup. He's like wearing a makeup that was more befitting a much younger woman. Like <laughs> Rude. I mean, she's basically standing there, you know, in a leopard, leopard print with lipstick <laughs> on the end of her cigarette filter. You want me to do a reading for you, honey? I mean, that's essentially what he's... She's my favorite favorite character in this section so far. So some latecomers come into the shelter. Uh, We find out, of course, later that that this is the Red Blade Captain, Lostara Yil. Uh, They've been tracking the book, just as a reminder from where we've been. They took some pages out before they arranged for Calum to get it. And their idea is they're going to track the book to find Shaik and be able to kill her. Calum does not recognize who they are. And after he leaves, they just, you know, kill everyone. Everybody there. Just for safeties, you know. Just can't can't take chances. Just in case. Loose lips sink bitches. <laughs> Lestar Yell is not getting sunk. <laughs> no. Not taking any chances. <laughs> and she is real, like she has her captain. I don't, I don't remember his name off the top of my head. But he's, you know, he says some offhand sort of slightly derogative comment about one of the other officers. And she's like, I will not have that next mm-hmm. time I'm chopping your dick off. Like, <laughs> he's like, yes, ma'am. Like, there, there is just no fucking around with Lestara Yill. Well, let's talk about Mappo and Ikarium. Mappo and Ikarium starring in Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> 
Mappo is getting too old for this shit. <laughs> he is getting too old for this shit. Trees underground. Uh, I'm getting too old for this shit. <laughs> Find this crazy monk's lost broom. Uh, I'm getting. I'm getting ready to retire. <laughs> That's the only the whole time and I'm like really is that is definitely uh, Mappo's energy you described it perfectly yeah and you know in Aquarium is is uh, you know Mel Gibson that a whoop 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 just you know uh-huh. not all together there it's I'm I'm not trying to uh, to this passageway is blocked off let's move it <laughs> exactly yeah well apparently we gotta Come find on. the broom <laughs> we gotta find a broom <laughs> you can't be serious <laughs> of course I am. So Mappo and Akarium are exploring the crypt beneath the old temple. Mappo speculates that the crypt is part of an older structure. So the temple they're in is the temple to the goddess of dreams or the queen of dreams. At least it's supposed to be. It's At, at one point, its most recent use mm-hmm. was as a temple to the queen of dreams. But down in the crypt behind a barricade, they find an elder warren. Um, they speculate that it is the, the T-Standee Warren, the Kurald Gullane Warren of Darkness. But as far as they know, the T-Standee have never been on this continent. What, 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 what? They also find the gate to the Path of Hands. And it is, it is really fucked up looking. It's, uh, they go in and they see this, this chamber and it, whatever it is, it's giving off some bad juju. They don't want to even go in. No, the, um... The whole time they're following through, there are Bacarala. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, th- I think that's how you pronounce it, which are essentially the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. Yes, that are following them around and kind of spying on them. And as soon as they go kind of past that opening, they stop and they're like, right. "Nope, no, thank you." The other thing I noted as they're doing this is all these trees underground. And at the end of the last book, dense, dense forest, the dead house shows up growing from a tree. Mm -hmm. Makes me wonder if there's some sort of connection. Hmm. Very, very good observation. I also noted that Mappo, again, is worried about Akarium learning too much. Very... Another reminder that his job is kind of to keep Akarium in the dark and keep him from finding whatever answers it is that Akarium is looking for, which is kind of messed up. It's like it is. It's like helping someone look for something that you know you took. Yeah, <laughs> it's a weird thing because you get his internal dialogue or his internal monologue rather, and. He's clearly conflicted about it. Right. Like, he's not like, aha, Karim, right. you dummy, ha-ha. <laughs> you know, he's conflicted about it, but he's still going to do it. So we have some mysteries are solved and some are deepening. They We found the gate to the Path of Hands. So before before we, um, we go too much further, there was something that I noticed that I think is a misprint in my book, but I don't know. So it's when they're kind of walking, getting ready to walk through. Uh, and I, it's a little on the long side. I'll be as brief as I can and try and read it to you. Uh, it says, When first Mappo and then Akarium clambered through the opening, however, the Bacarala did not follow. Actually, and then it goes on a little bit longer, so there's a bunch of stuff I can skip. Without another word, the three began walking. So 
Mapu and Akarium and the Bakarala walking. They go past. The Bakarala no longer go. Then they start talking about the Warren and what they're able to sense. And then it says, without another word, the three began walking. Well, hang on. So you're reading from the, the e-reader version, right? Correct. All right. Let me, I have the book here. Let me look it up. Right. Yeah. It says this in the, the print version as well. Hmm. Weird. I don't know if it means anything. So put a tack in that. So some mysteries get solved. Some are deepening. We found the the mysterious gate to the path of hands that all the soul taken and the D-Bears are looking for uh, in their their bids to ascendancy. Something interesting that uh, Escarl Pust says to our two explorers when they return and they, they're like, oh, we found this thing. Well, first of all, they come back and they're like, we found this thing. And he's like... He's like, bitch, you ain't find shit. You don't know anything, you mm-hmm. know? But he says, you know, you two have been wandering long on the earth. It's weird that you haven't ascended, basically. Yeah, uh, yeah. I noted that as well. Before before they come back up, though, they do have a stretch of dialogue that is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. I, can't, I get it at this stage, but it's, it's where they, they talk in sort of internal, like like inside language, mm-hmm. so that we, the reader, don't understand it, mm-hmm. but they understand each other. Ikarium mm-hmm. said, look upon the undamaged carvings. What do they remind you of? Mappo had an answer to that. I see the likeness. Yet there is an unlikeness as well. Even more, I can think of no possible linkage. Ikarium says, we must go to the place we first intended to find. We approach comprehension. Like, that is so opaque and inside baseball. So I'd have to go back. You know, it, it may just be that it's been a little while since we read the beginning of this book to review the the earlier chapters with them. Because mm-hmm. they, they did have a destination. Well, we know that they were trying to find the the gate. So we we know that. But but the look upon the undamaged car, uh, carvings, what do they remind you of? Ooh, I see the likeness. But there is an unlikeness as well. I can think of no linkage. Linkage to what? Like they're not. Exp- they're oh not yeah, I mean that's definitely yeah. deliberately oblique. Yeah. That, that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. It's it's not a big deal, but it's just sort of a little annoying. It's like, well, like, if you're gonna keep me in the dark, then just don't bother to show the conversation. I I, I feel differently, but ah, that's okay. okay. I, I like the kind of teases of. You know, where you can go back on subsequent readings and, and be like, oh, that's what they were talking about. It's very British. Oh. Or Canadian. I don't know. Iskarl Pust wants his broom. So, yes, they go back to Iskarl Pust and they, um, you know, drop this this huge bomb on them on him. And he's like, whatever. Have you seen all these spiders everywhere? I can't stand them. This reminds me very much of a video game. Yes, yes, definitely. Where you're like, well, the old man in the cave said three times about the broom, so I guess I got to find this goddamn broom. <laughs> so it's kind of cool. It kind of makes you say, okay, what is it with a Skarl Boost? Um, is he a harmless kook? Is there something more to him? It's definitely common in this world for extremely powerful beings like Krupp to deliberately make themselves seem less powerful. 
you kind of get the sense that maybe there's more to a Scarlapoose than you see. Well, I think there's also, there appears to be, from what I can tell, it's by no means, you know, one for one, but there definitely appears to be a thing where people who are very magically powerful but haven't ascended start to go a little crazy. Very good point. You know, Ikarium can't remember shit. Mm-hmm. We had Hairlock in the beginning. I mean, he was very powerful, batshit mad. Mm-hmm. So there definitely seems to be some connection there. Duker. Moving on to Duker. Duker so- found himself scowling as he drew on a loose, thinly woven talaba. Duker wearing a talaba. Is that like my dreadlock phase in high school? You did not have a dreadlock Oh, phase. I had dreadlocks in high school. <laughs> I've I, seen no photographic evidence of this. I definitely had dreadlocks in high school. <laughs> I had a dreadlock phase. <laughs> I'm not proud of it. So Sormo Enath is, you know, we're just reinforcing what a badass he is here. Um, he's called some of his, some of these folks out to witness him calling up some some ancient spirits. This, for me, this is the part of the book where the first time through, I started to really have a hard time because there's just so much going on. There are so many characters and groups and histories and prehistories and gods and creatures. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm start, I start to run out a little bit of the ability to care as much. <laughs> especially when you're so it helped me when I went back through it the second time and now this time knowing that the characters from the first book are going to come back because this is the point where you kind of realize oh wait we're not going to see Tattersail or or Mm -hmm. Whiskey Jack or you know I'm still holding space for those characters in my brain and when I get to this point I'm like what I'm like I just I can't care about anymore like layered history yeah so as this section goes i mean it's it's entertaining to read and there are a couple of notes that i took for sure but it it doesn't hold as much sort of weight and character development as a lot of other ones do there's just not as much here to really talk about they went into the desert he pulled some crazy magic demons popped up they got eaten by soul taken they punch him in the mouth and they moved on. Though I will say, like when I was trying to like, I was like taking my my plot notes and I was right, you know, going through the fight. It was it was just kind of funny because I was like, okay, there's then they're attacked by some wasps and some rats and some snakes and, and then there's ants. a bear. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> like they like, just kept coming. <laughs> like just yeah, just shit. Kept <laughs> it's like I don't know what else. <laughs> what kinda, else can we throw in there? <laughs> it kind of reminded me of like the scene in the original Conan when he's brought back to life. <laughs> you know, they're in there, the weird like, uh-huh. things are flying around. Kind of reminded me of that a little bit. But yeah, there's just not as much here that's interesting to talk about. But there were a few things. I, mm-hmm. I took a couple of notes. Duker could feel Sormo Enath's sorcery like a warm cloak. He had never before felt a power such as this one. Calm and protective, strong yet yielding. You thirsty bitch. What? <laughs> when you take it out of context like that, man. <laughs> I mean, like, like you know, keep, keep some perspective. You're supposed to be a historian. Some objectivity <laughs> would be nice here, buddy. So the, all that goes down. Mm-hmm. They punch Sormo Enath. He sort of snaps out of it, 
And then he, he kind of comes to and he says, Somewhere, a crow flaps broken-winged on the ground. There are but ten left. Sormo's eyes flickered nervously. Something unexpected, historian. A convergence is underway. And I'm like, I have read 1.25 of these books, <laughs> and there is nothing about a convergence that's un that's surprising. Like, right. <laughs> it is, right. It, it's like, that's all this goddamn thing is about. It's constantly <laughs> going on about, about convergences. It's only new to you, buddy. Well, that I mean, we get a little bit of that in the ne- in the next chapter too. Uh, yeah, that's we do. something that's only new to you. We definitely do. So, and it does this this section does lend itself to an important question, though, akin to what is your Hogwarts house? What is your? Mm. Are you Camp Half Blood or Jupiter? That kind of thing. Okay. Are you a Soul Taken or a Devair? Did we already do this? No. It's tricky because here's my question. Okay. If you're a D-Bear and like one of your little, say you become a cloud of moths. I mean, you would obviously be something more badass than moths, but mm-hmm, and like you lose one moth. Yeah. Is that like, how does that work? Do you come back with like without a fingernail or? I don't know. Because I feel like you could like, you know, it would be safer. Can I split myself into two people? I think you have to be a creature. But can I fuck myself? Oh, <laughs> dear God. <laughs> I guess you could become a bunch of rats and Listen, have a rat orgy. Somebody Gross. Ha- somebody had to ask you it. have to sleep in my bed. I mean, we just <laughs> need to stop this line Listen, of conversation. Somebody had to ask it. <laughs> I just want to know what the ground that, rules that are. That may have been something that has never been covered on a Malazan podcast slash YouTube video. I hope to God. I'm here for you. I'm here to ask the hard-hitting questions. Oh my goodness! So you're a D-Bear, then. So are you, you ready? We'll we'll say yeah. what each other will be. Okay. Three, two, one, and we'll say it. Okay, you ready? Okay. Three, two, one. Soul, soul taken. taken. Definitely, you got to be a dragon. Come Absolutely, on. Absolutely, yeah. Come on, if you can't be a dragon, because I mean, who cares if you can fuck yourself? If you're a dragon, you get all the bitches. <laughs> you really do. You know Animator Ray gets all the bitches. All the bitches. So show. But dear God, turning into a cloud of wasps. Like, I know intellectually I wouldn't be afraid of wasps if I was a wasp, but also I think I would just be terrified of myself. I really... <laughs> Flying around, I just, looking. Every just, wasp looks at the other wasp goes, ah, <laughs> ah, ah. You fly in front of a mirror. You're like, oh, shit. It's just a cloud of confused wasps bumping into each other. That is what would happen to me. Until they collapse into the sand. This one is not terribly effective. (laughs) Oh, God. Time for chapter five. So chapter five also has a snapter. It is a a bit of prose, not a poem. I'm still going to read the whole thing. Do it. It's your podcast. You can do that. (laughs) Bokorala seemed to have originated in the wastes of Raraku. Before long, these social creatures spread outward and were soon seen throughout the seven cities. As efficacious rat control in settlements, the Bokorala were not only tolerated but often encouraged. It was not long before a lively trade in domesticated breeds became a major export. The usage and demonic investment of this species among mages and alchemists is a matter for discussion within treatises more specific than this one. Baruch's 321st treatise offers a succinct analysis for interested scholars. So two things come to my mind when I read this. 
first is, hey, a mention of Baruch. There we yeah. go. We we know a tame Bo- Bokarala as well, mm-hmm. who may or may not have been magically invested. And two is the Bokarala that, that are taunting Iskaro Boost. And yeah, yeah, yeah. seem to be like like maliciously mm-hmm. causing him trouble. They're they're definitely a character. Yes. In this in this series so far, in this particular book. So being reminded that they can be demonically invested or otherwise used by mages and alchemists mm-hmm. just, you know, makes you wonder what's going on there. It does. I wondered. I did. That's because you're smart. Hmm. All right. In chapter five. Fiddler, Crocus, and Absalar travel to Gadanisbad and find the city completely overrun by rebel tribesmen and every Malazan in the city dead or on the run. Fortunately, they are thinly disguised as locals and are able to pass through the horrific scene nearly undetected. Unfortunately, they manage to piss off some of the real locals who swear to hunt them down. As they run for their lives, Absalar makes a stunning revelation to her companions about the memories she is carrying. Callum finally enters the Raraku and delivers the book to Shaik so that she can start the whirlwind and take down the Empire. Then he sets off to kill Lazine so that he can save the Empire. Very mixed signals, Callum. At least he has a pet dinosaur now. Shaik, as per the prophecy, opens the book at dawn. She is immediately shot in the head by Lostara Yil. <sighs> womp womp. <laughs> Her bodyguards, Laemon and the Toblakai, are a bit phased, but they decide that this must just be, like, a really weird prophecy. (laughs) Basically, that's what happens. Foul snot of rabid dogs, anal crust of dysenteried goats, such a sight for two young newlyweds to witness. Will you curse their marriage but two weeks since the blessed day? Shall I loose the fleas on my head to rend your worthless flesh from your jellied bones? I mean, that was pretty awesome, well, right? I never. <laughs> I'm liking this growl. I don't I don't know any real growls, but I like them all already. You like the fiddler version of growl. I do, I growl. do. It's pretty, uh, he's obviously pretty convincing. You know, think about it. It's very smart to have picked a growl as his cover, because other people seem to be kind of like, you know, intimidated by, but also, you know, um, they're not asking a lot of questions. Weirdly charmed by, yeah, yeah, by him. I mean, his horse bites someone's face off, and they're just like, "Can I pay money to touch your horse?" And yeah. they literally <laughs> pay money to touch his horse. I just have to say how hard it is to say Gadanis bad. Not in an Australian accent. <laughs> Where I had you? like I had to practice for a while. <laughs> Where are you guys going for vacation? Gadana's <laughs> band. <laughs> Come on, say it. It's real. No, I can't. Say I'll it. never say be it. able to unsay it. I had to. I had to untrain myself. It was a tough one to say. It's yeah. like it's like what you know. What's the name of that city? Gadana's band. <laughs> Your, your dad did what? Like, it's, <laughs> it's it's a tough one. There's so many apostrophes. There's, you know what? Erickson hasn't meant an apostrophe he didn't he just, like. He really hasn't. He really likes to use the random ass apostrophes. So we have another a scene similar to what we've seen before with Fiddler, where he uh, intervenes. He goes into a city that's been being terrorized. Um, this time, it's not the Red Blades. It's the... Uh, some of the tribesmen who mm-hmm. have taken advantage of the withdrawal of 
a nearby Malazan garrison and they have you know taken over the city. But either way, there's a bunch of soldiers. They're hunting down a young girl and Fiddler intervenes. It's a pretty, this is another really kind of gruesome, dark yeah, this part is of the book. quite dark. Um, arguably as dark as the slave mines. Yes. But yeah, Bo- both of these chapters have some pretty rough stuff. Yeah. Particularly when they go into the city. I also really like, before we got get too far into it, there's a very subtle mention in the beginning of a massacre that happened at Ladros Keep, which is yeah. something that Fiddler had heard about, but not, you know, mm-hmm. obviously wouldn't connect it to anyone that he knew. I thought that was a little bit neat. The other thing I noted in reading this is Fiddler once again says Fiddler had never before ridden such a game beast, and he found himself grinning in spite of himself. So what is it with both Fiddler and Calum having the two best horses in the Seven Cities? Because they do, okay? I do like that Erickson has essentially made the horses like separate characters. Like mm-hmm. they have an impact on the story. They clearly have kind of their own spirit and, and, and brains about things. But, but it, when I first read it, when I read this section the first couple times, actually, because I mm-hmm. read it a few times, I couldn't remember. I was like, which one of it that fell in love with this? Is it Fiddler that fell in love with this horse or is it Caleb that fell in love with this horse? And then I, you know, read it again recently taken. I'm I'm like, oh no, it's both of them. Yeah. They both found the best horses in all the land. Well, I really like um about this is the the Grawl horse, you know, finally deciding that he, he can tell the Fiddler's not a Grawl, but he's acting enough like one to yeah. like start working with him a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. I thought that was that was cool. And the other the other tribesmen take them in, but then they're they're debating whether or not to ransom uh to ransom Fiddler back to the other Grawl tribesmen. And my probably favorite part of the entire section happens when Absalar stands up and says, I am with child. Defy <laughs> me and be cursed. We go to the city now. That's you right. just see her stomping her feet and they're like, no, 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 Don't no, curse no, me. No, no. I mean, if you're in it, if you're in a society where, you know, it's very martial and military driven and women generally don't have as much power, the ability to curse motherfuckers, mm-hmm. you know what? You hold on to that. Love that. And she starts like lifting her veil, like she's going to lift up her veil and curse them. Yeah. Like, oh, no, like, no, you, no, oh, oh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, that's bad. That's, that's pretty awesome. Like so I noted, you know, we go through this whole thing back and forth through the city. It's terrible. And then we have, it was kind of two big things that I noted that happened at the end. Uh, the first is around, well, it all sort of centers around Absalar. Right. But the first is Fiddler's comment that I did not see coming, that I feel like I should have seen coming Okay. in retrospect, where he says, don't fall in love with this woman, Fid, old friend, else loosen your guard of the lad's life and call it an accident of fate. Oh, snap. I did not see that little love triangle and it's very interesting because at this point, yeah. Fiddler doesn't know, but we know that Absalor is carrying the memories of Cotillion, the rope, who used to be Dancer, who was a friend of Fiddler's, 
but now she kind of gives him a boner. And I'm like, that's just a very, <laughs> that's just the kind of complexity that you can get just, when there's weird reincarnations yeah. and possessions going around. Just two dudes hanging out, <laughs> killing One people from the One of them is also 70s. a teenage girl. I'm One of them turns into a teenage girl. I mean, there's nothing, there's not, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> it's all very convoluted. Yeah, there's a lot of that in these books. <laughs> I love there's it. There's a lot of that I in these lo- books. I love it. Tattersale, six-year-old <laughs> slash 200-year-old <laughs> romance with uh-huh. Perron. I mean, it's... it's If if this book was uh, on Facebook, its relationship status would say, it's complicated. Yes. <laughs> I love at one point so they have the fight with some of the soldiers and uh, Fiddler looks down and sees that two of them uh, have had their crotches sliced open Mm. and he's like that's my girl yeah I know (laughs) yeah that's actually um, I I noted that too it says two of them writhed in keening pain near Absalar who sat calm in the saddle a thick bladed Ketheran knife in each gloved hand and I wrote down the sleeper has awakened <laughs> I mean, she's like the sleeper assassin who had like the Manchurian candidate who who's activated mm-hmm. now, you know, but she's in this, this this is the most interesting character so far for me, oh yeah, in the series by a mile, oh yeah, and particularly at the stage she's in now, where she's back to being Absalar or whatever. Mm-hmm. Her, her, she doesn't Becky from the Becky from the sea mm-hmm. she's back to being you know Absalar she's kind of getting her own identity back but she also has still a lot of the memories mm-hmm. of being sorry and she's somehow able to connect to the memories of Cotillion mm-hmm. as well so yeah it's really really interesting which is when you know we get to the end of this section with mm-hmm. them where they're walking through the city. Crocus says, did Malaz treat these people like this when he looks at mm. the sea of dead bodies? Yeah, of civilians, dead civilians. Civilians, women, old men, women, old women and children. You know, Fiddler's like, are you asking if this is justified? And then Absalar just goes straight into Cotillion mode and just starts dumping all the shit just and has access to things that nobody could know nobody else knows outside of Kalenved and dancer because fiddler says well there was that one time that you know this this the Aaron uprising and uh, absalar says yeah no that was lazine that was not Kalenved. and they were like what what What? how could you know that you know you were but a child you know yeah to your point earlier this is for the most part pretty much stuff that we already knew like there's nothing we to, the readers yeah, knew to, it, yeah. yeah to us the readers this is not new but to you know fiddler it's new it is and it allows us to address a, a couple of interesting points about ascension and this possession and mm-hmm. everything uh, number one fiddler asks why dancer slash cotillion you know who possessed this why didn't he reveal himself to his friends. Mm-hmm. And Absalar tells him that Dancer only trusted two men, Kellenved and Decemultor, the first sword who was killed. And she said, but if I had to guess, I would say Cotillion trusts no one. So it's a, an emphasis on the, the changes 
that that you go through when you ascend and are you even the same person whether it can be argued that you become someone else and, and i think that's particularly relevant because of some stuff that they talk about a little bit later that i that i also think is really important but you know we are looking back on the emperor with sort of a everything particularly through like fiddler's eyes mm-hmm. it's always like well the emperor would have done it the emperor that's not the way the emperor did it right like the emperor would have kept this rebellion in check the emperor would have mm-hmm. blah 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 what we don't we only know the emperor through other people's observations mm-hmm. but we know cotillion right we know like we know and i get I get which one is which sort of mixed up in my right. brain sometimes. But we know what the emperor became when the emperor ascended. Right. And we don't know if that twisted sort of insane character, how much of that was still present in the old emperor. Right. So where I think that's really important is everybody's talking about Surly's doing a bad job. Mm-hmm. She's not keeping the empire together. You know, she's so focused on conquest that she doesn't build she doesn't build the right kind of unity amongst the people she conquers. Then she sends them off to the next thing and leaves her backside unsecured. Kellenved never would have done this. Is is that true? Mm-hmm. Or is that did they when Kellenved was emperor? Did they say the exact same thing about whoever was you know was the king beforehand? Or what, right. You know? We we don't we don't know that. True. And it's been, you know, certainly speculated before that Kellenved maybe made a great conqueror, but he wouldn't have been a good ruler. It's interesting the way that the bits of information are, are trickling down to us and that we're putting them together. We also find out that if if Callum had known about, you know, who it was that was possessing Sari, he she would be dead. He would not have allowed her to live. So that's a little tidbit about their history. Well, is that what he said? Or did he say that Calum would have taken her immediately to Malaz City to go assassinate Lacine. No, I think he said she she would have joined them. Oh, I see. Gotcha. I thought he I thought he meant join them in a more literal. He'd be like, "Come on, girl." He'd be like, Let's, "Get in, bitch. We're going shopping." Exactly. That's what I. That's, <laughs> I completely misread that. Also, I thought it was interesting that uh, Fiddler reflecting on the the bizarre choice that was made to withdraw the Malazan legions from the nearby Panpatsan, which was what led to that disaster pan pole pot sun pot pole pan like that's not a lot easier to say than gadanis man we drove all the way from gadanis man from pole pot to pot pot sun (laughs) i don't know what you just said was any of that in english (laughs) it's not it's not actually um but we saw this move go down in the beginning of the book the decision to withdraw the the legions there yeah so are we ready to talk about Calum? And Shai? I guess so. So Calum enters the Raraku. He's immediately set upon by Shaikh's two favorite bodyguards and then Shaikh herself, who's like, give me my book, bitch. I'm ready to start the, the whirlwind. The big dude and the Leo man. I loved the detail that uh, how the, the Raraku is littered with false trails that are all leading mm-hmm. away from... The water sources. Yeah, I, I like that as well. But that Callum, is, who is a child of the desert, still remembers how to get back in. And, you know, there's a lot about 
identity in this book and who you are? Does your does your past define who you are or your present? Um, really explored in this storyline. The three companies that would come to be called the Bridge Burners, we can imagine no other name. Raraku burned our past away, making all that came before a trail of ashes. So much of the conflict that's happening here is about the history of one conflict laid upon another conflict Mm -hmm. upon another conflict where all these groups of people are like regretting a past identity that got denied to them. That was really the same reality that, that was created when their predecessors culture was denied to them Mm -hmm. it's just this ongoing you know state of of just getting thrown into conflict and then being angry because you weren't able to live out your life the way Mm -hmm. you wanted to be able to live it out which i think makes the notion of the bridge burners such a powerful symbol yes and you know when you look at who it's comprised of like the actual members mm-hmm. of the bridge burners and all their disparate backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And, but this is still where they're sort of, you know, identifying and finding their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said that beautifully. I, I agree. That's a, a really important theme. And I think it's why people love the bridge burners, you know? Yeah. yeah. So Kalen gets his ass kicked. He does. <laughs> says the broad belt over the man's loincloth was oddly decorated with <laughs> what looked to Kalen like dried mushroom caps of various sizes. And I was like, those are not <laughs> mushroom caps. Too. You know they're not. He is not wearing a, a loincloth. He is seven foot tall and he has 41 penises. <laughs> okay. Or Only ears. a man with 41 penises could be that quiet. <laughs> you got to sneak up. She said, he's seen 17 summers and has personally killed 41 enemies. I thought, oh, okay, oh, okay, it's ears, never mind. It's ears. It's, okay, whew, this is way less disturbing <laughs> when you read the rest of the story, when you're not in my head. So Kellum gives the book to Shaik, and he's like- We have to get our requisite dick jokes in. I'm sorry. I, I, I've, I, have we met our quota? I think we have. I think we're good. <laughs> He gives the book to Shaikh. He heads south. He's going to kill Lazine and save the empire, which will then doom the rebellion that he just started. He's very conflicted about it, but he kind of acknowledges that it's kind of messed up. He's like, well, okay. Well, I just did that. But Shaikh sends a dinosaur with him, basically. <laughs> That's one way to put it. I mean, I think calling it a dinosaur underplays how wickedly strange. The Napatorian is? Yeah. Yeah. I just picture like a velociraptor, but with one arm in the middle of its chest. I just picture I'm sure like, you could find fan art that would describe it better than that. I'm but. sure you could. I just picture like a giant like dog made of nothing but triangles. It's got three <laughs> legs, wedge-shaped head, but it's nine feet tall. It says the huge ungainly shape moved closer and Calum took an involuntary step backwards. An Aptorian deliverer from the realm of Shadow sent into Raraku by Shadow Throne to spy. And I'm thinking, who's to say it's not still spying? Why do they presume that it can't still spy? 
Well, we don't know. We, we don't just know, know yeah. that they say, you know, it belongs to Shaik now, and Shaik is going to send it with you to guard you or spy on you or whatever. So he's going to take the Aptorian and he's going to go kill Lacine. How is he going to sneak into Malaz City with this motherfucker hounding his every step? Very inconspicuous is the Aptorian. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be tricky. Going to be tricky. There's a lot about rebirth in this particular book as well. Different kinds of rebirth. Shaikh tells her followers, At dawn I will open the book and the whirlwind will rise and I shall emerge from it renewed. renewed. Blades in hand and unhanded in wisdom. Young but old. One life whole, another incomplete. So I love this twist that happens. Mm -hmm. Like this lead up, there's this huge prophecy. She opens the book, it's dawn. She gets shot in the head. I mean, the entire line, the whole thing spins this quickly. It says, yeah. the dawn's rays swept over Shaikh. The Holy One reached down and opened the book. The quarrel struck her forehead an inch above her left eye. Uh -huh. I'm like, well, that was <laughs> underwhelming. <laughs> I was like, did she see that coming? She's the seer. She's seen this a thousand times. Did, did she know that was going to happen? And, that, and that's the question. Nobody knows, right? The Toblakai stood nearby. She is dead. I see that, Leah Manson dryly. <laughs> what do we do now? So she opened the book. It was dawn. They're like, well, that was a weird prophecy. I know, right? <laughs> he said, we wait. The Toblakai raised his head and he sniffed. There's a storm coming, to which I wrote, metaphorical or literal? I mean, probably both. Probably both. Uh, so and and we have to say that Toblakai kicking everyone's ass with a wooden sword is uh, it's, definitely the best fight of the book it's so far. Super badass. It is For not sure. metal, however. It's not metal, but not literally. The fact that he's going around just like breaking motherfuckers' knees. <laughs> right? And they're like, that sword is wood. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't seem right. This is wrong. <laughs> I did. I did like how the captain was just like. Uh, we came to do, we, we did what we came mm -hmm. to do. Now we're getting our ass kicked. Let's go. Let's, fuck it. <laughs> Let's get out of here. <laughs> There's no reason to sit here and get our asses kicked by these two. And that's the end of not only the chapter, but of the whole section. The right. Whole, the whole of book, the book. The book one, yeah. Do you have any other observations before we go into listener interactions? Oh, no, that's, uh, that's it. I'm, I'm excited to get into the next book with you. I am and, very uh, excited to read the next book because it was almost six months ago that, <laughs> that I was like, oh, the Grawl are chasing Fiddler and Crocus and Absalar. <laughs> Can't wait to find out what's going to happen. <laughs> Okay, so on the Facebook group page, you put up a few hours ago uh, the notification that we were finally recording again. Thank you for all of the, the well wishes and um, glad you're backs and all that kind of stuff. And a couple of questions, too. Gordon Ross has a prediction for us. He thinks that Hoyd did it. <laughs> he could be right. He also says, uh, which tier of the Sanderson Kickstarter did you guys go for? Gordon, I have 18 days left to under, to, to decide that, okay? <laughs> Why are you putting all this pressure, pressure on me? me? I keep going to the page. Uh, I mean, I, I will say I'm leaning towards the hardcover 
um, tier where you get, have do you, have you, are you aware of this? Do you know what this is going on? Uh, our son actually just told me about it this morning. Uh, yeah. He's the one who told me about it. So yes, I, I'm leaning towards the, the hardcover tier. Although, I, and then I keep going, oh, am I just, then am I just going to see people opening their swag boxes on, am I going to regret not getting the whole thing? Or should I get the hardcovers and the ebook? I'm just, I'm waffling, but I have 18 days. And um, nobody's going to take those 18 days away from you. That's right. That's right. It's going to be like 1157. <laughs> <laughs> be like sweating over my computer. Um, Jan Clifford Godfrey says, question, you two doing okay? We're doing all right. Yeah. Yes, we are. So, yeah. So the last several months for us, like if you... If you take an episode of My So-Called Life, and then you take an episode of General Hospital, and you take an episode of Homeland. ER, definitely throw in an episode of ER. And you just mash them all together. (laughs) That's it. That's pretty much much it. Yeah. Johan Christensen says, do these books strike you guys? Um, as pro-colonial. I mean, in a horrible world, the Empire seems like the least bad guys in many aspects. No. You know, I, I, I get that. I get why someone would think that, though. And I, it's one of the things I really like about the book is because the evil Empire is a complex empire, you know? And even like, you know, you had um, Darugistan, the last free city, Mm -hmm. which could have been described as this total Mecca, but it shows like even like the less than perfect parts of that governing system as well and the ways that 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 power was still unfairly distributed there mm-hmm. erickson and, and it's his his background as, as a sociologist um and an archaeologist that he i think feel like that's really what he wants to talk about is the complexities of human society and when we all come together like the the complexities of different forms of government yeah and i i think one of the it is a complex question because a lot of what I see, it would be easy, I think, to paint the empire with a broad brush and say, oh, it's evil. But it's really, I think, the notion of conquest and military conquest, which is where, you know, a great deal or, or the worst of the suffering comes from. You know, the child soldiers, the <clears throat> the people who are trying to shake off, you know, the yoke of the empire who go in and just kill civilians, the... But I definitely can't see an argument for it being pro-colonial. Not to me. Not not to me. Theo Graham Brown says, Really like the slight break with cliché when Calum tells the sergeant to keep his guard up rather than trying to humiliate him. But is that his Clawmaster necklace? I don't think I ever realized he was a claw before. Am I going mad? It definitely says that he was a claw master at, at one point. Yes, I think we did know that. And it, it it doesn't it doesn't get into it or why he's no longer with the claw. Mm-hmm. It just references a couple times in passing that he was a former claw master. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yan Clifford Godfrey says, "Will the quest for the broom be the major quest of this book?" Uh, listen, before we can get enough <laughs> rupees to buy the blue sword, we have to find the broom. <laughs> Eric Allgaier says, 
Uh, what do y'all envision the Bokorala looking like? And why is it stuck in head that they look like this? And then they have a picture of Gleek from Super Friends. I mean, that's pretty much, <laughs> yeah. that's pretty much it. No, to me, they very literally look like the flying monkeys from absolutely uh, maybe smaller and smaller uglier. but but yeah but that's 100 percent what they look like in my brain oh yeah um eric allgaier also says also did you miss us and absolutely. i have to say that we did of course um we did. you know the, the crazier our, our life gets we have moments where we ask ourselves are we going to keep doing this? What are we doing here? And it always comes down to we love these interactions that we have on the on the Facebook group page and other places, and we would really miss that. So yeah, we're not stopping you listeners. The yeah. Oh no, we're not. <laughs> yeah, I'm we're just, not stopping the podcast. I'm yeah. sharing, you know, in our deepest darkest moments that we've been like, are we ever going to have time to do it again? And uh, it, it always comes back to that we that the interactions that we have are you know keeping us around, and we really appreciate that. Yeah, and it's fun. It's fun for us. It's fun, hopefully, for you guys. It's fun, you know, to build and be a part of this community. I think we wish, we definitely wish we could do it more often than we are. But this is kind of where we are and, and what we're able to do. And uh, we'll keep doing it as much as we can because we do really enjoy it. And we enjoy all of you guys and hanging out with you. Are you guys ready for predictions? Yes. All right. So I have a couple, I have a few. Uh, right. So one of the things that I've really gone back and forth on, and I've, I know I've said this before, but is Fellison. Mm-hmm. Like, I definitely get the vibe that Fellison is not going to survive. But I also know that there are things attributed to Fellison that have to happen later. Mm-hmm. So what I've come to is that both... Hebrick and Balden are going to die breaking her out of prison. Okay. That's that's my prediction, number one. Number two is that Icarium destroyed one of the ancient civilizations in the Seven Cities, and Mappo is trying to help him avoid that memory. Mm-hmm. Three is the tower that Iscariopus lives in, is the home of the titular Deadhouse Gates. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, that seems fairly obvious now. Mm-hmm. And my last is that uh, the Bokarala are spies mm. for somebody. I do not know who it is, but they are the eyes in the desert. All right. Them's my predictions. I love it. You can find us on the Duke and Duchess podcast.com. You can find us on Twitter and most of the social media is at the DND podcast. And if you really want to interact with us, the best place to do that is on our Facebook group page. Just search up the Duke and Duchess podcast group. Uh, it's important to note that it is different from the fan page that we created when we were young and dumb and didn't know any better before we realized it's not really a good place to interact. So we created the group, uh, which is really where we do most of our hanging out. Please come and hang out with us there. Even if we aren't uh, always actively podcasting, we are at least we are at least always keeping one eye on what's going on in the group page. And let's note too that um, to join the group, you do need to answer a membership question. We have had a, a rash of people trying to join without answering those. And we, we do not accept those because we really don't want people spamming or, 
you know, you guys asking for help for their Nigerian prince friend. And- you would not believe how many people we reject each day. It, it's pre- it's pretty amazing. <laughs> I don't know what anybody thinks they're going to get out of being on our <laughs> little spamming pod- our podcast. I, I really <laughs> don't know what they think they're going to get out of it. But every every day, sometimes uh, sometimes ten or fifteen a day that we reject it. It's crazy. Next time. Chapter six and seven. Six and seven. All right. Good night, everybody. All right. <laughs>